before, and then go over to Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. And this will be uh, the focus of our study in this hour, uh, which is now, I think, 40 minutes, right? We get done at 1045-ish? 1145? That's right. Got it. Okay. Then, hear God's Word from Acts chapter 1, um, verses... I'm going to start at verse 4 and go through verse 8, and uh, then go over into chapter 2. While staying with them, he, that is Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the fulfillment of that promise we read in the beginning of chapter 2, chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. And it was in that context then that Peter arose to preach and to explain that it's Jesus who has poured out this manifestation of the prophetic spirit of God. Let's pray again and ask the Lord to teach us. Father, This is such a rich text. This is such a great event. The celebration of Jesus' coronation for His church on earth. As at this point, as the victorious, obedient, suffering servant Messiah, He had been exalted, freed from the bonds of death, brought into the new age, the age to come, in his own glorious resurrection body, and then enthroned at your right hand. And now he pours out on his church the fullness of his Spirit, giving gifts by the Spirit to all of his people. But especially, Father, we hear in this place of gifts to speak your word, to declare the mighty deeds of God. What a marvelous sign this is 
demonstration of your power, but not only of raw power, but really with the great message that you are gathering and will be gathering, and in our day continue to gather all the nations so that all of the tongues of the earth are joined together in praising you who sit on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit in our lives. And we pray that uh, we might respond to these great truths that you reveal here with joyful and bold witness as you open opportunity to speak the mighty deeds that you have accomplished in Jesus, your Messiah. We pray in his name. Amen. We were chatting after last night and uh, somebody said, we're all Pentecostals. And he said, you're right, because we all benefit from Pentecost. And we're all charismatics, because we all receive the charismata, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm not willing to let other parts of the church that have somewhat other teaching preempt those titles. They belong to us, too. Uh, come to think of it, we're all Latter-day Saints as well, according to the Bible. And, uh, and that, that title has been claimed by a group that isn't even a part of the church, that denies the triune God and uh, is really a polytheistic group. But uh, uh, all the good titles really belong to those who belong to Jesus, right? Um, now, sometimes we're tempted to talk about a particular group, and they've applied a title to themselves, Pentecostalists, Charismatics, and we're tempted to, because some of the strange things that may go on in those circles, we may be tempted to conclude that it's a, it's a little risky to think too much about the Holy Spirit. Um, I hope you don't think that. Uh, it's risky to think too much about the Holy Spirit if you're not willing to think biblically. But if you're willing to let the word that the Holy Spirit breathed out in the Scriptures guide your thinking about the Spirit's work, uh, then that's what we want to do because we want to hear the whole counsel of God. And it's true that people can get fixated on the Holy Spirit and forget the Holy Spirit's own testimony to himself as we hear John the Evangelist recording the words of Jesus who talked about the mission of the Spirit not to draw attention to himself but rather to bear witness to Jesus. That's the Spirit's wisdom. That's the Spirit's witness, his mission. Uh, and so we don't want to folk, fixate on the Spirit and forget that His calling is to introduce us to Jesus and to turn our eyes to Jesus. But we also don't want to neglect all that the Bible has to tell us about the work of the Spirit. And certainly the book of Acts wants us to know, Luke wants us to know, the Spirit speaking through Luke wants us to know about His mission. As you see in the outline, next outline, the part two of the Tuesday morning session, uh, three points, and I'm going to try to, to balance our time so we end up talking about each of those three. Uh, the key themes, as I see it, uh, in terms of the, the Spirit's mission are witness. He comes to equip us and to empower us to be witnesses to the gospel. Building. He comes to construct a new kind of temple not like the physical temple that was in Jerusalem at that time, but would soon be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. And uh, he comes to reunite the human race, which had been divided from the time of Babel by 
differences of language and differences of culture and differences of priorities and all the rivalries between nations, the Spirit comes to reunite a new humanity, uh, not by erasing our ling- linguistic differences, but by instead employing our languages in the praise of God. So witness, building, and reunion as he reverses the divisions introduced at the Tower of Babel. First, witnesses. I read part of Acts 1 because I think it's really important uh, to remember that Jesus had set the stage for the outpouring of the Spirit in these words to the apostles, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, You'll receive power, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. Notice that, and I wanted to read the preface to that in the Apostles' question, because Jesus is responding to a question that they've asked. Lord, is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, When Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, Luke's Gospel tells us in the 19th chapter, in the 11th verse, that some people thought he was heading to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom as they understood the kingdom, that is, to basically seize political and military power to lead a revolution that would expel the Roman occupation forces from God's land and reestablish Israel as a political power in the Near East in the first century. And Jesus told the, the parable that in older versions, like the King James Version was called the parable of the pounds, British pounds, uh, but uh, now we often call the parable of the minus in our English versions, which is just an attempt to put into English the sound of the of the Greek word for a a, a piece of, a monetary unit that was used in the first century, a monetary unit that was tiny compared to the talent, uh, similar to the parable of the talents that Jesus told in Matthew, uh, but different in a couple of respects. Uh, and we're told in Luke 19 that Jesus told this story about a nobleman who goes away to be appointed king and entrusts a certain amount, a modest amount of money to his servants uh, for them to deal with and to do business with in the interim of his absence because people thought he was going to establish the kingdom as they understood it immediately. And he wanted to prepare his followers for a long duration between his departure and his return, calling us to be faithful. It's a long duration in which he's being patient with those who oppose his rule as well. That's a parable I'd love to preach on, but we really don't have time for me to do that. So go to Luke 19. It's a great text. They wanted to know when Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom. As Jesus got to Jerusalem, um, he began to talk about the destruction of the temple. He began to talk about his return. And again, his disciples wanted to know, are you going to come back soon? And Jesus at that point said, again, it's not your, it's not your business when I come back. And he, in fact, he said in Matthew 24, 36, concerning the day and the hour of my return, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, from the standpoint of the fact that as a real human being, he's infinite God, knows all things, but as a real human being, Jesus doesn't know everything. That's hard to get your brain around. I know that. But that's true. 
Real incarnation, the fullness of God, and yet Jesus remains a full human being. Jesus says, I don't know when the Father is going to send me back. From the standpoint of his human nature, he doesn't know. The Father only. In other words, he's saying, don't pry into things that are none of your business. But still they're asking. So here they're asking. Uh, you see, date setting is, is not something that has only come into the Christian church since... 1948, when Israel was reestablished, or since the Cold War, or uh, since the late great planet Earth, or Left Behind, or the Six Day War, or Gulf War One or Two, or Y2K, or boy, we're good at setting dates, aren't we? But this is nothing new. We always want to set dates, and Jesus always says, "It's none of your business. It's none of your business. I will be sent back when the Father is determined." So his first answer is, the timing is none of your business. But he's also answering something else that was going on in their question, and that is their conception of what the kingdom would be, or the parameters of the kingdom. They ask, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer, in his alluding to Isaiah 49, verse 6, he's saying, not only are you asking the wrong question about timing, but your picture of the kingdom is way too, too small. Turn back with me to Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is one of the sections in which the Lord is speaking to his servant. And actually the servant begins to speak at the beginning of the chapter. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Uh, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. He said to me, verse 3, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Too light a thing for you to only function to restore the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Israel, and Jacob. No, I'm going to make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. That's the kingdom. You see, Jesus is echoing that right here. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And if we wonder if that's just coincidence that he happened to have chosen those words, Luke embeds in his narrative a record of Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, two Antiochs in the book of Acts, two Ananiases in the book of Acts, important to keep them separate, especially the Ananiases. We'll talk again about them. Um, but this Antioch is in the center of Turkey, what we now call Turkey. And uh, there, as Paul and Barnabas are preaching, they say, the Lord commanded us, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Quoting directly from Isaiah 49, verse 6. So Jesus is saying to these disciples, 
your horizons need to be a lot bigger. You need new horizons. Bigger horizons. Worldwide horizons. When you think about the kingdom. And he does it here, not only by echoing Isaiah 49.6, but also by echoing other passages in Isaiah in various ways in verse 8 of chapter 1. When he talks about the Spirit coming upon us and receiving power. Uh, about the Spirit being poured out in this language is all echoing the picture of the prophets. In Isaiah 44, for example, verses 1 through 8, uh, again, God is speaking to His servant in Isaiah. Sometimes the servant is Israel, the nation or the people of God, guilty but with the promise of restoration. Sometimes the servant is that unique servant who is faithful. It's Jesus Himself. And they seem to go back and forth because Christ identifies his people with himself and himself with his people. But here in Isaiah 44, the promise to the servant is, I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground. That's a picture. What does the picture mean? Well, the next line explains it in verse 3. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. The water, the rainfall is the spirit. The dry ground are your children and your children's children who need to be brought to life by my Spirit. Verse 4, They will spring up among grass like willows by flowing streams. That's the picture. What does it mean? They will say, I belong to the Lord. They will open their mouths and bear witness that they belong to the Lord. So there's the picture. Water poured out. Jesus will pour out the Spirit on His people not many days from now. That was John the baptizer's promise. He will pour out the Spirit and you will be baptized with water to bring fruitfulness. Isaiah 32.15 All the desolate things, God says through Isaiah, will be desolate until the Spirit is poured out from us, on us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field a forest. In Isaiah 35, we're going to look at that tonight with the leaping of the lame man. But again, the picture of waters breaking forth in the wilderness. All of this related to this theme of the Spirit coming to bear, to enable us to bear witness. The Spirit's rainfall coming on God's people. That's necessary, God says through Isaiah, because if the Spirit doesn't come, Israel will not be a faithful witness. One of the themes that comes in the latter chapters of Isaiah is that Israel is Jehovah's Witnesses. Israel is Jehovah's Witnesses. And they are the Lord's Witnesses because in, a, in a courtroom setting, in a, in a lawsuit kind of setting, because... At times in the book, in the prophets, God files his lawsuit against his people because they've been unfaithful. But in these later chapters of Isaiah, and I've given you some of the references there in Isaiah 42 and 43, in the later chapters, it's the Lord suing the pagan gods served by the pagan peoples. He's suing the idols and he's saying, You're false. You can't keep your promises. It's like you're guilty of false advertising. You know how the hamburger chain stores accuse one another of false advertising. Our beef is beefier than theirs and all this kind of stuff. Uh, The Lord is saying the idols have, have been false advertising. And the pagan nations are blind because 
They don't see it. Uh, one of the most amusing sections is Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, right after that section I was just referring to about the water on dry ground, where the Lord describes this man who goes out, uh, first, first a silversmith, but then somebody goes out and cuts down a log and carves it up and makes an idol and well, he's got all these wood chips left over. What's he going to do with the wood chips? Well, that's good kindling, so he'll cook dinner over the wood chips. And then Isaiah says, it never dawns on him. Part of it I used to cook dinner. Am I going to bow down to the rest of it and look to it for salvation? The, the pagans, the unbelieving Gentile nations around Israel are obviously blind because it should be obvious to them that the images and the idols that they're serving cannot do anything. That's not surprising. What is surprising, the Lord says, is that my people are blind. Look at Isaiah 42 with me. In Isaiah 42, actually, this is earlier, obviously, in Isaiah 49, and at the beginning of this chapter, also the Lord is speaking to the servant, and in verse 6 he says, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Same thing that we saw in chapter 49. You will restore those within Jacob and Israel whom I'm calling to faith, but that's not big enough. You're a covenant for the people, but you'll also be a light to the nations. But this is... God's unique word to Jesus because Israel is disabled. Israel is unable to be a witness at this point. Go over with me now to verse 18. Here in chapter 42. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but the pagan nations? Is that what you read there? You might think that, but that's not what he says. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Here's the problem, see. The Lord's case, that He is the true and living God, the only one who can save and rescue, the only one who can announce the future and fulfill His predictions. The Lord's case, in a certain sense, in an earthly sphere, rests on the testimony of his eyewitnesses, and his eyewitnesses are blind. His eyewitnesses are blind. You've seen many things. Isn't that the history of Israel in the Old Testament? You've seen the Exodus, when God brought you out of slavery with a mighty hand. You've seen his provision for 40 years in the wilderness. You've seen the might with which he brought you into the land under the leadership of Joshua. You've seen him placing you, as it were, on the top of the heap in the political and military structures of the ancient Near East in the reigns of David and Solomon. But you're so forgetful. You don't take it to heart. You are blind. Of course, that's, you know, we think back to Isaiah's call back in Isaiah 6 
when Isaiah is called to preach to people who will see and see him, but they won't perceive, and hear and hear, but they won't understand. That's a very frustrating ministry. Here is a blind people who are to be the eyewitnesses. They need to be healed. But that's where the comfort of the beginning of Isaiah 42 comes in. Because the true servant of the Lord, the faithful one, who is obedient to the Lord at all times, whose ear, Isaiah 50, I'm running all over the place, I'm sorry, but it's all there, just find it. In Isaiah 50, whose ear is always open to hear the Lord's word, that faithful servant has fixed his face like flint to endure suffering for the sake of restoring the eyesight of the people of God who have been the unfaithful, blind, and deaf servant of the Lord. Jesus comes to restore our eyesight, to restore our hearing. Jesus comes to enable us to be his faithful witnesses. I am convinced that that's part of the reason, at least. Uh, I'm sure that there were spiritual needs that, the, that Saul, the arrogant Pharisee, had that the Lord also dealt with in striking him blind with the glory of his radiance on the road to Damascus. But part of the reason that that sign of judgment was inflicted on Saul, I'm convinced, was that Jesus was, in a sense, taking the blindness that had been inside, invisible, in Saul's heart, where he couldn't see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Messiah, the crucified Messiah, until that moment, Jesus turns that inward blindness into something that everybody could tell because Saul had to be led by the hand in. Interestingly, led by the hand, blind at noonday, uh, those kinds of things that Luke uses to describe Saul's plight after the glorious uh, appearance of Jesus are the very terms that are used in Deuteronomy 28 of the judgments that God will bring on Israel when they fail to keep covenant. You will be struck blind at noonday. You'll need to be led by the hand. So Saul is a kind of a microcosm of Israel needing the healing touch of the true servant of the Lord so that he can be a witness. And that's, of course, the role of Ananias in that whole picture. We're going to look at that tomorrow night. So, Jesus says, I will restore your eyesight. I will open your mouths. I will make you witnesses by sending the Spirit on you. He had already begun that work. I mentioned earlier this morning, the the work of regeneration is not what we're talking about when we talk about the gift of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost because the Spirit has always been the one who has drawn unbelieving hard hearts out of darkness and death and into life from the dawn of sin in the world. uh, The way God has always called His covenant people by His word is through the sovereign application of the Spirit. But now something new is happening in the equipping of God's people to be his witnesses. And the dimensions, notice the dimensions, to the end of the earth. Not just for Israel, but to the end of the earth. In Isaiah 45, the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all you end of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. To me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear allegiance or will confess. I mentioned that Israel was Jehovah's Witnesses, right? The next time the folks from the Watchtower Society come to your door, I've had, actually, 
I was going to say I have had fun, and it is kind of fun. But I really do want them to see the truth. And uh, I've taken them to that passage in Isaiah 45 where the Lord says, I am God, there is no other. I'm the only source of salvation. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will confess me. And then we go to Philippians 2, where Paul talks about Jesus, who became a servant and was exalted. And where Paul says, to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I'll say, boy, it sure sounds to me like Paul is saying that Jesus is Jehovah, the only Savior. What does it sound like to you? That's not one of the ones that their books have prepared them for, typically. And uh, it's, it's an interesting discussion starter. Jesus is the one to whom every knee will bow. He's the only one in whom salvation is found. I mean, go to Acts 3, Acts 4, 12. Salvation in no one else. Another echo, really, of Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Notice it's to the ends of the earth. That's what we need to, to keep seeing because here Jesus is, in a sense, rebuking our small-minded, uh, miniaturized hopes for the kingdom as he does the disciples. Uh, see the, the scope of the kingdom of God throughout the ends of the earth. Now, points B and C under point one is just to, to acknowledge that in the book of Acts, we have kind of two categories of witnesses, and it's important to recognize that. There are the apostles who have a unique role as witnesses because they are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. We've already been talking about that, that our faith is grounded in objective truth, the truth of the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the apostles' testimony as eyewitness is foundational for us. And the apostle Paul though he did not walk with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, is also called to be a witness to the things that he has seen and heard. Acts 22, verse 15. That's true, and that's important. But it's also true that the Spirit of God is a witness and that he is given to all those who believe in Jesus and therefore there is a true sense in which we can say that everybody who has been brought by the Holy Spirit out of death and into life has a role in this new Israel witness to the church. Look with me at Acts 5, verse 32. Here we have the apostles. Uh, they've been arrested uh, and... Uh, brought to uh, before the Jewish High Council again. Uh, and again, they bear witness to what they have seen and heard. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, verse 30, uh, verse 30, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness of these, witnesses of these things. That's that unique apostolic witness. We have seen Jesus raised from the dead. We have seen him ascend to heaven. We are witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, the witness is not locked up to the apostles only. The witness, because the Spirit is given to all who obey God's call to trust in Jesus, the witness is extended uh, to others and through others. And you see that as you go through the book of Acts. 
uh, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and following, after Stephen's death. Stephen, by the way, is called a faithful witness. He's not an apostle. And even though we hear from him the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts 7, um, he's not at that point, as far as we can tell from the narrative of Luke, he's not been ordained to a ministry of the Word. He's been ordained to a ministry of tables, a ministry of mercy. Scholars debate whether those seven are deacons in the sense that we have deacons now, but they're, they're at least super deacons. But their ministry is, is deed ministry. That's the point, to free the apostles for word ministry. Stephen is one of those, but he's also given extraordinary gifts to bear witness. And so he's done that. He's been killed, and now there begins to be persecution against the church, fomented by this young man named Saul from Tarsus, who wants to eradicate the message of Jesus. And we read in Acts 8.1, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the people we're going to read about now are not the apostles, who are the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And notice what they do, verse 4. Those who were scattered, no apostles, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. For example, Philip. Philip in Samaria. Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch throughout the rest of this chapter. Not an apostle. Not an eyewitness to the resurrection in that unique sense that the apostles were. But now they're spreading the word. The word that was given through the apostles. But now they're spreading the word as well. And the Lord is bearing fruit uh, in his word as it grows through the witness of all kinds of folks. These same scattered folks are mentioned again toward the end of Acts 11. Acts 11, verse 19. Those who were scattered, no apostles, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Hellenists in this setting means those who are ethnically Greek or other Gentiles speaking Greek but non-Jewish that is not tracing their family tree back to Abraham. And here we have at least as far as the recorded narrative in the inspired canon is concerned, the founding of the first Gentile church. The Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia. He was a Gentile. Could not have become a Proselyte, a convert to Judaism because of his being a eunuch, but uh, he brought the gospel back to his home area in uh, what they then called Ethiopia, probably closer to Sudan in terms of political boundaries today. Um, but here's a Gentile church planted by people who are f- full of the Holy Spirit, not the eyewitnesses, but bearing the word of Christ along. Uh, Jesus is turning his people not just a tiny group, but his people, into a community of witnesses. So witness, that's the first point. Second point, oh wow, I did it again. He anoints the church to build God's house. Anointing in the Old Testament, as you know, anoints various leaders to rule, including the builders of the tabernacle and the designers of the tabernacle, men like Bezalel, uh, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, Exodus 31, verses 2 through 4. 
who is filled with the Spirit of God to build the dwelling of God in the midst of God's people. Uh, But especially the leaders who shepherd the flock. Moses and the 70 elders, a fascinating period. This is when Moses was overburdened with the process of leading the people and he, his father-in-law advised him, you need help. God confirmed that and he was told to bring 70 of the elders. There apparently were more among the tribes of Israel, but 70 of them together to receive a special measure of the Spirit so that they could wisely adjudicate the disputes among the Israelites. 68 of them were at the tent of meeting at the right time. Two guys were elsewhere in the camp. I don't know if their alarm clock didn't go off or whatever, but uh, Eldad and Medad were elsewhere in the camp. But at, at the appointed time, the Spirit fell on all 70 of them, including the two who were not with Moses. Well, Joshua, who was always defensive of Moses and his unique role as the mediator of the Old Covenant, told Moses, stop those two. They weren't with you. And Moses said, don't be jealous for my sake. Don't be jealous for my sake. I wish that God would put His Spirit on all of His people, that they would all prophesy. Well, Moses' wish became God's promise in Joel 2. And that's the passage, of course, that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. I will place my Spirit on all flesh, on sons and daughters, and they will prophesy. Now, they prophesy in a very special way. They prophesy by speaking the mighty deeds of God in the various dialects, Actually, the, word, the Greek word from which we get dialect is in this passage in Acts 2. The various dialects of the gathered people there. And they speak the word of God to all these different nations and all their different languages by a miraculous gift of being able to speak the languages. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law uh, are working to bring the gospel uh, and the word of God into a language and a people group that don't have it in their own language. At this point, they don't even have a grammar or a dictionary in their language. They don't have the extraordinary gift of tongues. That would speed the process significantly. Uh, They're doing it the old-fashioned way of studying it with linguistic principles. But Pentecost is a kind of a preview of what they're doing. Actually, what's happening right now, right here, is a kind of a preview of what was taking place. Because uh, uh, English is a foreign language. Uh, Maybe not to you, maybe not to me, but from the standpoint of the first century, uh, we might have been included in principle uh, among all those other nationalities if there were Jews scattered as far as as England, if English were around in any form recognizable. But you see, God is gathering his people and he's building his church, and that's the point of the tongues of flame over the the heads of the preachers. Uh, All of the witnesses, the 120 gathered, as they're bearing witness to the mighty deeds of God. It's like their miniature tabernacles, like the pillar of fire over the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now all of God's people are His house, His dwelling place. Peter will expand on this in 1 Peter 2. You are a spiritual house. Spiritual house. That is, Holy Spirit created house. Right? Paul talks... Ephesians 2.20 and following. We looked at that passage already. Paul talks about God making a dwelling of Himself out of people. A dwelling of God by the Spirit. So the dwelling of the Lord among His people. And in the process, He's reversing the divisions of Babel. 
Why the list of names here? I know I'm skipping past part of the outline, but we need to heed the need of the children's workers especially. Just a word on this. Why the list of all of these nationalities that go across from Iran and Iraq, across through Turkey to Rome and into North Africa? Well, it's an echo of the description of the nations in Genesis 10 that leads to the account of Babel in Genesis 11, the division of the nations by their languages. In Babel, humanity wanted to stay united in defiance of God's command to spread out and fill the earth and subdue it. Let's stay together and build a name for ourselves. In Genesis 12, God said, I have a different way of uniting humanity. I'm going to divide arrogant, proud, self-centered humanity by making them unable to communicate to one another. But I have a plan to unite humanity. I'm going to call by my name, Abram. And in his seed, in his children, but specifically in one seed, as Paul reminds us, in the seed of Abraham, I will bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so these nationalities that are gathered here as they hear the mighty deeds of God are a preview of all that will take place. Pentecost goes in waves of expansion to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. We'll be looking at that later this week. But the point is that God is uniting people through the mighty deeds of God as he draws our hearts captive to Christ by the grace of the gospel. These are really the first fruits. Interestingly, the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, was also called the Feast of First Fruits because it was the first part of the wheat harvest offered up to the Lord 50 days after the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And God really is gathering the first fruits in, from which now He continues to gather the harvest among all the nations of the earth. Well, I've taken more time again, but that's as much as we can have time for this morning. Um, let me lead us in prayer as we close our morning sessions. Our God and our Father, How thankful we are that you have poured out your Spirit, that you gave the Spirit to the risen, exalted Lord Jesus, the faithful and now glorified servant who has poured out his Spirit to equip his people to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Here we are at the ends of the earth and the light of the gospel has reached us here And we rejoice in confessing and bowing the knee before Jesus, who is Lord of all, who is truly Jehovah come in human flesh, in obedience, Father, to your command and commission, ready and willing and eager, despite the anguish of the abandonment that he would have to suffer for our sake, ready to come to obey to offer up himself that he might gather us in to the family of God, build us as living stones into the new spirit-filled temple that he is building that is his church and glorify himself in our midst. Be with us in our time of uh, fellowship around the tables at lunch and uh, refreshment and relaxation and uh, recreation this afternoon as well. Continue to write these truths deeply into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.